set that right in the center. All right. Well, thank you for the invitation to come back. I feel like I'm not a stranger this time. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for gathering us this morning. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for a great Savior we had to have and that we've worshipped this morning already. We praise you. Ask that you'd bless us as we look at your word today. In the name of Christ, amen. The title to my message this morning is Worship. How? It's based on John 4, verses 23 and 24. We call the morning service a worship service. But calling it a worship service doesn't ensure that we will worship. You can attend a worship service without worshiping. Why is it important for a Christian to worship? Philippians 3.3 indicates there are three characteristics of a Christian. If we start at the bottom, the last phrase, it says uh, a Christian is one that has no confidence in the flesh. And certainly that's true, is it not? We rely on grace and not confidence. That's the first characteristic of a Christian. The second characteristic is one who rejoices in Christ Jesus, someone who has joy in his heart. And we know that is a mark of a Christian because the fruit of the Spirit is joy. A third characteristic of a Christian, according to this passage, is one that worships God in spirit. If you don't worship God in spirit, you're not a Christian. And so we find that it's imperative then to worship. It's urgent and it's really a glorious action. And if we looked at those characteristics again, you'll note that the last two do not really come by uh, naturally. We don't naturally rely on grace because we have a tendency to move towards relying on the flesh, and we're not always joyous. In other words, they are by design, they are by purpose that we do them. And when it comes to worship, we don't naturally do that as well. You see, we're created at our deepest level to worship. But this instinct has gone wrong. Jonathan Edwards spoke of religious aff affections, the center of our being that orients our uh, mind, our emotions, and our will towards an object. And sin has caused our affections to stray propelling us to worship human relationships, achievements, entertainment, work, power, money, sex, anything and everything but God. And sometimes we can get obsessed with these things, comfort ourselves with these things, fantasize about these things. And biblically speaking, then, they become our idols. Worship, too, needs to come by design or by purpose. And so... It is well for us to look at worship. How? Let's look at that based again on John 4. Well, let's begin this morning by looking at the definition of worship. Worship is an old English word that comes from two parts. It means worth-ship. And I would like to define it as a private act of seeing what God is worth and giving him his due. 
When I treasure something, I longingly look at it, for example. Uh, a couple years back, I was looking for a computer, and I got uh, enthralled with uh, the Microsoft Pro. And I went to Best Buy several different occasions. I looked at it, I played with it, and I went home and I talked to others about it, and I talked to my IT guy about it, and, and I was really, really seeing the merits of it. And then finally... I purchased it. And so it is with worshiping God, treasuring God. We ponder His worth, and then we do something about it. We give Him His due. Every successful approach to corporate worship should have these two characteristics built into them. Song and scripture and reading and and exhortation and the sermon should show people what God is worth. And then the offering, the praises, the thanksgiving and the confession and and the trust that emulates allows people to respond in a form of worship. And so as an introduction this morning, we've looked at the urgency of worship because That is a characteristic of a Christian. You're not a Christian unless you worship. And then we've looked at the definition of what a Christian is, or or what uh, definition of what worship is. It's assigning value and then doing something about it, giving him his due. Assigning to God his true worth and then giving him his due. From this definition, then, of of worship comes two important questions. What is God worth, and how do we become aware of it? These questions are answered by this morning's text. For these two questions immediately bring us to the very heart of the discussion of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Let's... Turn our attention to John 4, verse 23 to 24. I would like to read the last part of that verse. It says, God is spirit. His worshipers must. Note that word, must. You must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus said that those who acknowledge God's true worth must worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit because man can only understand spiritually and we're to do it in truth because that's the very nature of God. So let's begin by looking at our text this morning and and look at what it means to worship him in spirit. In spirit. There's a sense in which we can only come to worship God after the Holy Spirit has been at work in our hearts. Don't you agree? But I don't believe that that's what Jesus was speaking about in this particular verse. He's speaking about the Spirit in the Spirit without using a definitive article prior to it. He's not saying the Holy Spirit. He's saying to worship in the Spirit. He's teaching us that in this new age that he's ushering in through his uh, death and resurrection, the place of worship would not matter. And doing certain things right would not matter in and of itself. Now the believer 
is to worship in his spirit. And that can be done any place. You see, man is made up of a, uh, of a trinity. He's made up of body, soul, and spirit. And I believe this will clarify what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that nothing is true worship of God except when it takes place in the man's spirit. Now, many people think that they worship in body. This means that they would consider themselves to have worshipped if they've been at the right place, doing the right things at the right time. The Samaritan woman would have thought that. She thought worship could only occur at Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. Today, it would refer to someone thinking that they've worshipped by occupying a seat, singing a hymn, lighting a candle. Sorry. Your mere presence this morning does not ensure that you will worship. Your presence in the things that you do can certainly be a vehicle to worship, but they are not worship in and of themselves. My thoughts go back to a lady that I observed on an occasion who appeared to me as one who thought her attendance and it was the activity of worship. But, but I, I don't think so. Let me explain. When I was in seminary, I was asked to attend a, a worship service of a different tradition that I normally was that I normally attended. And so I chose a very highly liturgical service. I went to Episcopalian church. I'd never been to one before. Being a Baptist, uh, I never really experienced that flow of a service, and I found it to be worshipful. And uh, though it's not my weekly choice, I found it to be worshipful at the time. An elderly lady, as we were walking out, criticized the pastor as we were leaving the church for he had forgotten what I perceived as a very insignificant event. He had forgotten a small part in the service. He had forgot to kneel when he was standing. And he forgot to say just a short phrase while he was kneeling. And she was upset. Now, that just gave me the appearance that her presence, she thought, would constitute worship. Merely being present does not ensure that you will worship. Your presence this morning does not mean that you will worship. In conclusion then, being in, we don't automatically worship in body. But is it true, you might ask, that we worship in soul? Do we worship with our souls? You know, the soul is the, the seat of our emotion, is the seat of our feelings. And the answer is no. We must not confuse worship with feelings and emotion. Worship doesn't originate with the soul any more than it originates with the body. Emotions might be stirred in the midst of a church service. It's possible to be moved by a song and a sermon and yet not come to a genuine awareness of God and a fuller praise of His ways and His nature. You know, a tune of a song, for example, can move us. It might move us, but not cause us to reflect on God in worship. Emotion is meant to affect the will or the spirit, 
but emotions can stop short of doing so. True worship occurs only when that part of man, his spirit, actually meets with God and finds itself praising him for his love, his wisdom, his beauty, his grace, his power, his compassion, his mercy, and all of his other attributes. William Barclay writes this quote, and I'd like to read it to you. It summarizes what I've been attempting to say. He writes, The true, the genuine worship is when man, through his spirit, attains to friendship and intimacy with God. True and genuine worship is not to come to a a certain place. It is not to go through a certain ritual or liturgy. It's not even to bring gifts. True worship is when the spirit, the immortal, immortal and invisible part of man, speaks to and meets with God who is immortal and invisible. We worship in spirit. Now what kind of applications can we have from that thought that we worship in spirit? The first application that I think that it has, it it pertains to corporate worship. Now corporate worship is very important. Jesus says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself. He wants us to get together for corporate worship. And he says, where two or three are gathered, what? Isn't that amazing? You know, we all have the Spirit of God within us, but where two or three are gathered together, there's something special that occurs. He said, he will be in their midst. And so corporate worship is very, very important. Now, the difference between private and public worship is that in public worship, individuals are doing worship in concert with others. If you've been into the fair this summer, they've seen these powerful draft team, horse teams. Uh, sometimes they're six-horse hitch. And each horse is affected by the energy and the speed and the direction of the other five. And the same is true with corporate worship. We're all individuals, but yet we're affected by the energy and the speed and the, and the direction of others in corporate worship. Now, what's the application then? of worshiping in spirit to corporate worship. A very important one. You see, unfortunately at times as church attenders, we can perceive ourselves as spectators. If we don't lead the service, don't lead the music, or we don't preach, or we don't have some public role in the church service, we tend to think that we are a spectator. Thinking of ourselves as a spectator, we can go home and we can critique the worship leaders and the pastor as to whether they had a good worship or not. I mean, after all, they're the ones doing the worship, right? No. The fact that worship doesn't doesn't incur until our spirit is involved informs us of a very important aspect of worship. Namely, that worship is not a spectator sport. Worship is not a spectator sport. It is a participant event. And that greatly affects how you come and worship in a morning service such as this. It's like going to a football game. 
If you're there in body, you're a spectator. If you really put your soul into it and you get emotionally involved in the game, you're still a spectator. You haven't run the football. You haven't caught a pass. You haven't blocked. You haven't tackled. You're not a participant. You can be bodily present, emotionally involved, and yet a spectator until God's Spirit touches your spirit. And therefore, corporate worship is a spectator. It's not a spectator event. It's a participant. You yourselves, each one, comes up to participate in the worship. You don't need to lead the singing. You don't need to preach. You don't, these roles merely facilitate the worship. They're not worship in and of themselves. When the spirit of man becomes involved with the truth of God, that's when worship occurs. And that's the role of each of us this morning. The song leader, the preacher, and other leaders are merely cheerleaders. You're the participant. You're the player. Or could I say you're the football player. You're definitely not the audience. You're not the audience. If you're not the audience, who is? God is. God's the audience. And he observes the hearts of each who are present this morning. Worship is a verb and it's reserved for participants. And corporate worship is a participant event for each who attends. We need to go home and crit critique ourselves have we worshipped this morning a second application the type of worship service the the, the fact that we worship in spirit we worship God in spirit also influence has an influence upon the, the question of the type of liturgy that we should use in corporate worship With the exception of a liturgy that suggests wrong doctrine, there is no liturgy in and of itself that is inherently better or worse than another. Now, there might be individual preferences, but there's no wrong approach. Types of worship services are not the central issue. It can be highly liturgical, like the Episcopalians, or it can be, go to the other extreme and be marked by spontaneity where uh, you come to church and you wait to see what God does and see what God, how God moves you and at the moment. Now, spontaneity can be meaningful to me, but it lends itself to no preparation and simply a waiting upon God. And sometimes it can leave the service rather empty. And an Episcopalian church, while I found it to be worshipful, I think the routine of it would set in in my life and I would find it less worshipful. Being an old Baptist, did I pronounce that right? Baptist. Uh, <laughs> I like what we have here at Grace and Grace and Linden as well. The variety of worship type services can be infinite. It can be almost anything that you imagine from Uh, a honky-tonk piano in a white-frame country church to a a great pipe organ echoing through the vast chambers of a huge cathedral to the sheer silence 
of a friend's meeting broken only when someone feels the movement of the Spirit. In all of these things, Christians have expressed worship. Worship is the goal. It has preferences, but it has its goal. The, 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 the worship, the type of service has a preference. We all have preference for that, but the goal is to worship. And since worship is done in spirit, the type of worship service is not a limiting factor. It should not be. There's no problem if indeed it creates an opportunity for men and women to worship. When no one is worshiping, it's considered a dead church. It was said in jest that in such a church, a lady died during the service and the mortician came and picked up two individuals before he got the right person. <laughs> let's move on. Let's, let's recapture what we looked at. First, we looked as an introduction the importance of worship. It's a mark of being a Christian. Second, we looked at the definition of being a Christian. And that is assigning to God His true worth and then giving Him His due. Next, we began to look at our text. And our first point was is that we found to worship is not in body, it's not in soul, though both of those aid worship, don't they? You can't, you can't worship corporately if you're not here bodily. And emotions help us to affect our spirit, but worship occurs in spirit, we looked at. And then we looked at two applications. One, it points to the fact that corporate worship is not a spectator event for those that come up. It is a participant event. And the type of liturgy is not something necessarily would cause hindrance to worship. There are umpteen types and all can lend itself to true worship. Now, secondly, as we move on and we go back to our text, I, it, it says um, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship God in truth? Well, we need to worship on the basis of biblical revelation. My next slide is Matthew 15 verses 8 to 9 and it illustrates this point. It reads the this people honors me with their lips but their hearts or their heart is far from me. Uh, that that phrase just reiterates what we looked at. It reiterates the fact that we worship in spirit. But it's the second part verse 9 that I want to draw your attention to as we begin to shift and begin to look at worship in truth. It says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, what? The commandments of men. Uh, they weren't teaching scripture. They were teaching commandments of men. So if we're to worship like God commands us to, then it must be in accordance with biblical truth. Let's look at what it means then to worship in truth. Merely learning a truth about God is intellectual education, but it's not worship. For example, I can know intellectually that God is good. 
and still be worried silly about some event that's going to occur next week. If this morning's sermon is, is about the sovereignty and goodness of God, I haven't worshipped unless that truth descends upon my mind and my soul and my will and my spirit and touches my spirit. I've worshipped then when I realize that I've been trusting on my own abilities, not the sovereignty and goodness of God. And then I, I pull my affections from other things that I've been valuing or trusting in. That's why I'm anxious anyway. And then I put them on God. Uh, emotionally, I may cry. I may not. It depends on my personality. But the truth will affect my will and my spirit. And most importantly, when I decide to change the way that I will handle the upcoming week's threat, then I have certainly worshipped. And so the essence then is that when truth causes us to pull my affections off of other things that I've been trusting in and put them upon God. We can define then worship in truth as being an acquisition of truth. We acquire truth in order to give value to God, to Jesus Christ. We acquire truth with the objective of putting value to Jesus Christ. As an application, the Romans revealed the danger, or the book of Romans reveals the danger of the opposite. Let's look at that. It's tedious. I don't know if you can read that. It's a bunch. But it's a passage you're familiar with, uh, for sure. It talks about uh, God... God's nature, His creation, and how uh, his, it's part of God's revelation. Man is guilt, guilty before God simply by being on this earth and observing the morning and, and evening and, and the specter of, of this great universe. But Paul tells us they did the opposite of worship. They suppressed the knowledge of the truth. They suppressed it, and they exchanged the glory of God for images resembling men and birds and animals. You see, generally, we don't leave God because we value Him too little. We exchange God, and Paul uses that word, and exchange the glory of the immortal God. We exchange God for something that we value more. That's why it's such an infinite insult to God when human beings perpetually prefer something else rather than God and refuse to worship Him. That, my friend, is why there's eternal punishment, a never-ending state of misery. It's, it, it's almost unbearable to meditate upon. But God wants us to worship Him and to trade, that passage of scripture goes on and says they exchanged a lie for the truth. They took the truth of God and exhibited it in creation and exchanged it for a lie. They suppressed and replaced. That's what the unbeliever does on a permanent basis. In Christ, we are a new creation, and yet 
our sin nature occasionally appears, as you may know. Therefore, the believer can periodically and temporarily value other things more as well. Even legitimate things can crowd in and take the truth of God away from us. Allow me to share a struggle that I have. It involves the Seahawks. Now, football is a legitimate gift from God. <laughs> oh, uh, I have to start with that, uh, with that uh, foundation. It is a legitimate gift of God, but yet each week's big game can seem so significant in the moment. These games can tug at our hearts. They can even yank, and victory can make us ecstatic, and loss can make us numb. <laughs> Especially at the beginning of the season and perhaps every week, it's wise to ask ourselves how much of this activity is really calling the plays of our heart. Where is my affection? Where is my worship? What captures my idle thoughts? Because what captures your idle thoughts threatens to be your idol. How much am I building my life around the hawks? And what important things in my life are suffering as a result of that? I'm getting so attached to this team that I'm neglecting important things like family, friends, work, studies, and more significantly, my stirrings within my heart for Jesus. Am I closer to Him because of sports? Or does the game subtly move me away. Remember to value God and His Son is of utmost importance and it is worshiping God in truth. Final application of worshiping God in truth. We should always be looking for evidence of God's value, not just evidence of truth. The devil believes God is true and probably knows more truth about him than you do. But the devil will not acknowledge that God is supremely valuable and totally satisfying. Why not? Because he values himself. God's presence gives no joy, no satisfaction to the devil, whatever. The aim of our worship is not only to see what is true, but what is valuable about God. You see, our goal is to value the treasure that God is. Our aim is not to understand the millions of evidences that God exists, but rather to see the millions of reasons why God is a treasure and let it resonate within our spirit. To worship in truth, then, is to inquire, to acquire biblical truth in order to give value to God to Jesus Christ. And so in conclusion this morning, these are the things that we've looked at. We've looked at, first of all, uh, the importance of worship. It is a mark of being a Christian. Then we looked at the definition of worship. It's assigning to God His true worth and then begin to give Him His due. Next, we move to our text and our first point was is that we found that worship is not in body or in soul, but in spirit, that inner part 
of us, the center of our being, our spirit. It is in our spirit that we worship God. And that had two applications we looked at. In a corporate worship service such as this morning, you are not a spectator. You are a participant. God is the spectator. Then we looked at the type of liturgy within a service. That's not the determining factor. It's not a hinder to worship. We might have preferences, but in and of itself, it's not a hindrance. And then second, we looked at what it means to worship in truth. It is the act to acquire truth in order to give value to Jesus, to God. Now in final application. Do you know that the night before a football game, the Seahawks all stay together at a hotel, even if it's a home game? They do this so that they can separate themselves from all the cares of their regular lives and begin to focus on the game entirely. They review the game plan for the next day. The coach establishes a curfew so that the players aren't out too late because they need their rest to be at their best. All of this is done so that they can be quote-unquote, on their game. That's an expression they used to mean that they are prepared. They are on their game. My question to you is, are you on your game when you arrive at this assembly? Are you prepared to worship? You see, you are the participant. Not me. I'm a cheerleader. I don't look like one, but I'm a cheerleader. You are the participants. And you know what else is unique about the Seahawks? You ever watch the, the coach being interviewed after the game? And they'll ask him a question about the game. And he says, I haven't, haven't reviewed the tape yet. And you can tell by the way he says that. He wants to, he wants to get in the film room immediately and review that tape. And he does so on Sunday yet because Monday morning the guys are coming in and he wants to critique them. You see, there's a sense in which we prepare ourselves to come to worship. But then immediately after the game, the corporate worship, do we critique our performance? God does. Let's pray. Father, thank you. What a privilege it is to worship you. What a great God you are. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price. Man, there's no way we could pay that price. But you did for us. We value you. We praise you. We worship you. In the name of Christ, amen.